Hello and welcome to another podcast. I'm still Mike Carter. Thank God for that, huh? Uh, this is a little late. I've been busy doing some stuff and doing some thinking. Uh, always a dangerous prospect, right? I promised a couple of uh, shows, part two of the female singers and one on male singers, only four that I'm going to include, and a huge one, not a long one, just a huge project for me to put together on film music, film scores, and composers, major composers, and some scores that I really like. Many you won't be familiar with, and maybe when you're watching the movie, you'll be unconscious of the score in the background, and that's the way it should be, as opposed to uh, the Top Gun strategy to write a film score or put together a film score to sell a soundtrack. We'll have none of that nonsense. On the last show, uh, we covered some female singers who are lesser known or maybe really well known. Ella Fitzgerald, Anita O'Day, and Sarah Vaughan, Julie London, Carmen McRae. And I guess we'll continue with the uh, mystery singer and you can guess and so forth. Same, same procedure as last time. I'll play a little bit, talk about the singer, tell you who it was, and then play a final selection or part of a selection by that person. First, a couple of these uh, thoughts, the dreaded thoughts. <laughs> I have to put into words because I was watching a documentary on uh, Amazon Prime, great source of everything, and one was, a, I haven't seen it, but it was a four-part series on jazz musicians today. And where are the, the John Coltrane's or the Charlie Parker's or the Lester Young's or the Art Tatum's? Where are these guys today? Well, it pointed out that they're among us, but something, something has happened to jazz as a, a form of, of expression. And it's the same thing that happened pretty much in rock. Um, back in the 60s and into the 70s and somewhat into the 80s, there were individuals who were really well known. And the late 60s, of course, comes to mind with Janis Joplin and Jim, you know, Jim Morrison and the Doors and Hendrix and these guys. And in the end of the 70s and 80s, and you know, Led Zeppelin. It's difficult to think, for me to think of, I don't listen to that much rock anymore, but it's difficult to, to just like name off the top of your head a group of say five musicians or five bands that are really you know in the public consciousness today it's it's fragmented it fragmented in the 70s and went on the 80s and 90s just fragmented i mean on Sirius you can find like 21 different varieties of rock well back in the 60s there was like you know late 60s you know they call it psychedelic rock but actually it was just it was just kind of a Everybody was doing their own thing. It was a, a new kind of music. The guitar reigned supreme, but people were doing things with rock uh, and lyrics that hadn't been done before. And now I think what has happened with rock is, it's, I mean, it's become like a generic name. Very little original stuff is being done. It's mostly derivative, imitative of what, of what has been done for the last 50 years, some aspect of it. So you choose what you like, the sound that you like, and you listen to it, and it becomes as much as we like it, and maybe as talented as the musicians are who are imitating styles they've heard and grew up with, it, it becomes kind of Muzak, because nobody is striking out into new territory, pushing the limits, or as Art, Artie Shaw said in one of the last broadcasts, they don't make mistakes. They're not, they're not trying to do something they haven't done before. They're doing things imitating what they've heard. Bands aren't doing things new and, and original or striking or revolutionary. It's just, it's just more of the same. And you know, I don't know what direction we're going. I think that just as jazz had pretty much run its course by the 70s or 80s, and people still play in that format, but it's not like it used to be, as they say in these recordings. Rock has done the same thing. I don't know what, what is coming next. I've got a feeling maybe nothing. And by nothing, I don't mean we won't listen to, to what, whatever's considered music. It's that music will be more of a sound effect to our environment as opposed to something to gather around and sit down and listen to. Yeah, I mean, you can dance to, you can dance to a, a rhythm, heavy rhythm, synthesized. You can dance to it. But actually listening to the music, I think, <laughs> I don't know. But as far as I can see, those days are gone because music doesn't have the same place in our lives as it did 
we don't listen to musicians so much. Uh, somebody, Eric Clapton, taking a guitar course, or Art Tatum you know, doing his incredible runs on the piano. It's become, to get philosophical, kind of an environmental construct, something for people to move to, and maybe if the lyrics are bad enough, <laughs> sorry, if they're simple enough, people to sing to. But generally the idea of listening to a musician play an instrument, you know, when does that happen? Except maybe in you know, college jazz lab bands or high school. I'll probably put in a couple more of these thoughts, uh, for better or worse, during the program. But I had to get that out of my system because I love music and I love musicians' interpretations of music and, com and compositions. And it kind of pains me to realize that the days of musicianship, except in very esoteric circles, like schools or areas that I'm, I'm not that familiar with, but maybe I suspect New York, large city clubs uh, where people play, but for people to go over to each other's homes and have the focus of a large part of the evening on listening to something new that's really great in music and to sit around for a few minutes and listen to it, really listen to it and say, wow, that's great. I don't think that happens much anymore. Anyway, on to the show. So let's bring up our first mystery guest. Again This couldn't happen Again This is that once In a This is the thrill divine What's more This never happened before Though I have prayed for That such as you would suddenly be mine Mine to hold as I'm holding you now and yet What a great voice. Any guesses? Okay, that was Doris Mary Ann Kappelhoff, otherwise known, probably more familiarly, as Doris Day. This was before rocketing to movie uh, Hollywood stardom with uh, people like Rock Hudson and Cary Grant and uh, James Garner and a host of others. Her name, Kapelhoff, was uh, deemed too long for uh, theater marquees, so it was changed to uh, Day after her rendition of uh, the song Day After Day. Good choice, huh? Her early work in the 40s, uh, she worked with Les Brown and Bob Crosby. Then she did a lot of radio work. With uh, Les Brown, she recorded her first hit recording, Sentimental Journey, released in 1945. And she reached uh, top 10 on the Billboard charts with My Dreams Are Getting Better All the Time, Till the End of Time, and I Got the Sun in the Morning and the Moon at Night. Uh, her film career pretty much took off on, on with her dramatic roles in uh, Love Me or Leave Me from 1955, and The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956, in which she sang the ever-popular Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. But where she really hit it big was when she returned to kind of the, the romantic comedy roles. Movies we're pretty familiar with, uh, Teacher's Pet with Clark Gable and Pillow Talk. In the early 60s, her popularity waned, and uh, she was, this is interesting, she was offered the role of Mrs. Robinson and a graduate. She turned it down, and the role went to Anne Bancroft which I think was a blessing in disguise, right? Then in the late 60s, this is a sidelight, nothing to do with her singing, but she got into some financial trouble, which was none of her fault. And this is from uh, Wikipedia. After her third husband, Martin Melcher, died in 1968, a shocked day discovered that Melcher and his business partner and advisor, uh, James Ro Jerome Rosenthal, had squandered her earnings, leaving her deeply in debt. Rosenthal had been her attorney since 1949 and represented her in 
un the uh, uncontested divorce action against her second husband. She filed suit against Rosenthal in 69, won a successful decision, but did not receive compensation until it was settled in 1979. Sounds like today's politics, huh? She also learned to her disple displeasure that Melcher had committed her to a television series, which became the Doris Day Show. And a quote from her, It was awful. I was really, really not very well when Marty Mel uh, Melcher passed away, and the thought of going into television was overpowering. But he'd signed me up for a series, and then my son Terry Melcher took me walking in Beverly Hills and explained it wasn't nearly the end of it. I'd also been signed up for a bunch of TV specials, all without anyone ever asking me. I guess you have to watch who, uh, who represents you, huh? Anyway, she went on to do those TV specials, which she really hated, but uh, she was obligated to do them. A little background of rosy-faced, happy Doris Day that we don't... Unless you follow the papers back then or got movie magazines when you're, you know, a kid, uh, you really probably weren't aware of. There's really a lot going on behind the scenes, isn't there? It had kind of a, a happy ending, well, at least a not disastrous ending. Uh, Terry Melcher stated that his adoptive father's premature death saved Day from financial ruin. Day was inducted into the uh, Ohio, Ohio Women's Hall of Fame in 81 and received the Cecil B. DeMille Award for Career Achievements in 89. And in 1994, her greatest hits album became another entry into the British charts. Uh, from the American Film Institute, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George W. Bush. He was good for something. And so forth. She died in, she died in 2019, and she was born in 1922, so she lived to be, what, 97 years old. So there's hope for all of us, right? And one more small note here. Um, in 1978, she founded the Doris Day Pet Foundation, a nonprofit. To complement the Doris Day Animal Foundation, she formed the Doris Day Animal League. The facility bearing her name, Doris Day Horse Rescue and Adoption Center, which helps abused and neglected horses, opened in 20, uh, 2011. Quite a gal. Uh, if foundations are any indication, she was what we call an animal activist. And in 2019, uh, she died of uh, pneumonia after a pretty long, successful life. In all the research I did, or what little I did, I didn't find much about her singing itself, the quality of it. And that's probably because it was her singing career was overwhelmed or assimilated by her film appearances. And I'll point out the obvious uh, fact of what most of you who are listening to this are thinking. What's this have to do with jazz? Well, she had a beautiful voice and she could have done jazz, as she did, you know, with Les Brown and uh, Bob Crosby. But I think she fits into the jazz category in the sense that she could easily have made her career doing jazz recordings. She just didn't happen to because she became popular, and that led her down the path she chose and into Hollywood. But listen to this. I'm wild again Beguiled again A simpering, whimpering child again Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered am I Couldn't sleep and wouldn't sleep then love came and told me I shouldn't sleep Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered Am I lost my heart? But what of it? He is cold, I agree can laugh, but I love it, although the laugh's on me. And that is one end of the interpretive spectrum, and here is the other end. You go to my And you linger like a 
If you didn't recognize that singer, I would say listen to more jazz because you really missed something. That is, of course, of course, Billie Holiday. And that's a recording I got from Amazon Prime um, from the complete Billie Holiday recordings on Verve Records from 1945 to 1959. And this is rather early in the set, so I'm assuming it's the late 40s recording of one of my favorite songs, You Go To My Head. When I use the phrase interpretive spectrum, I'm comparing Doris Day's delivery to Billie Holiday's. Doris Day was, was a pretty straight, melodic interpretation. Billie Holiday, really, that's one of her trademarks. She bends the melody to suit what she feels belongs in the part she's singing. I've never heard anybody say this, and I could get arguments like crazy in the face here, but it's sort of like what Louis Armstrong did in the sense that she plays her voice a little bit like an instrument. Not like she's playing trumpet like Louis Armstrong did, but she uses her voice to interpret the song and doesn't just play it straight through like Doris Day did. I hope that makes sense. Billie Holiday's life was, was pretty rough and uh, drugs and all kinds of things as the lives of most painters and musicians and writers were. She was born in 1915 in Philadelphia and spent most of her childhood there. Uh, her mother was a teenager when she was born, and her father was a pretty, su pretty successful jazz musician who played with uh, people like Fletcher Henderson, but he didn't spend much time at home. And even though she had a, a pretty stable home life, the marriage ended a few years after she was born, and she, uh, her mother had to kind of struggle along. And she started skipping school, and her mother went over to, went to court over Holiday's truancy, and she was sent to the House of Good Shepherd, a facility, as it says on, uh, on the internet here, for troubled African-American girls in 1925. She was nine years old, and one of the youngest girls there. Uh, she returned home to her mother, but went back to Good Shepherd after she'd been sexually assaulted. Moving up to about 1930, she began singing in local clubs and renamed herself Billy after the film star Billy Dove. When she was 18, Holiday was discovered by producer John Hammond. And John Hammond, I don't know if I've talked about much about him, but he was an entrepreneur, very wealthy, who went around scouting for, for talent among black, black musicians. And remember, this was a time when the, when the Depression set in and musicians all over the place were out of work, needed work, and Hammond helped them find work. And Hammond found her while she was performing in a Harlem jazz club and he got her a recording recording contract, or at least recording work, with up-and-coming clarinetist and band leader Benny Goodman. She went on to record with Teddy Wilson, who was, of course, part of the Benny Goodman Quartet, later the piano player. And also in 1935, she appeared with Duke Ellington in the film, which I haven't seen, called Symphony in Black. And about this time, she befriended uh, the great tenor man, Lester Young, who was part of Count Basie's orchestra. And actually, Lester Young lived with... Billie Holiday and her mother for a while. She was given the nickname Lady Day in 1937, the same year she joined Basie's band, Count Basie's band, and she toured with Basie in uh, 1937 and then uh, went with Artie Shaw for a while. 
and she broke new ground with Shaw, becoming one of the first female African-American vocalists to work with a white orchestra, which was uh, pretty strange. I mean, even for somebody as big as, um, as popular as um, Louis Armstrong was, that was not allowed. So she struck out on her own and performed in what this article calls New York's Cafe Society and developed some of her trademark uh, uh, stage presence there, wearing gardenias in her hair and singing with her head tilted back. And this is the same time she debuted two of her well-known songs, God Bless the Child and Strange Fruit, which I should play, but I don't think I'll have time. But it's a story about African-Americans being lynched in the South. And then we get into drugs. Um, the same year she had a hit with God Bless the Child. She signed with Decca Records in 1944 and uh, scored a hit next year with Loverman. Her boyfriend at the time was a trumpet player named Joe Guy, and she started using heroin. Her mother died in 45, and she began drinking more heavily and escalated her drug use to ease her grief. She remained a major star, of course, in the jazz world and even in popular music as well. But her drug use caused her a great professional setback the same year she was arrested, convicted for nar narcotics possession in 1947, sentenced to a year in jail, and went on to a federal rehab facility in Alderston, West Virginia. She was released the following year, but because of her conviction, she was unable to get the necessary license to play in cabarets and clubs. She could still perform in concert halls and had a sold-out show at Carnegie Hall not long after her release. With the help of a New York club owner, Holiday was able to play in New York's Club Ebony, which I'm not familiar with, but it must have been a big, very important club. He became her boyfriend and manager by the end of the 1940s, and the article here says, joining the ranks of men who took advantage of Holiday. She was again arrested for narcotics, but this time she was acquitted. By the 1950s, her drinking and the drugs and probably a few other things were taking a toll on her voice. She continued to tour and record in the 50s uh, with Norman Grants, who owned several small jazz labels and had a, a large, largely uh, successful uh, tour of Europe in 1954. And she wrote an autobiography, which was made into a movie, I can't remember who starred in it, uh, called Lady Sings the Blues, 1956. And in that same year, uh, she became involved with someone, and they were arrested for narcotics and were married in Mexico the following year. And, of course, the guy used her name and her money to advance himself. She gave her final performance in New York City on uh, May 25, 1959, and not long after that, she was admitted to the hospital for heart and liver problems. She was so addicted to heroin that she was actually arrested while in the hospital. And she died on July 17, 1959, from alcohol and drug-related complications. More than uh, 3,000 people turned out to say goodbye to her at her funeral on July 21, 1959, including Gene Krupa, Benny Goodman, Tony Scott, Buddy Rogers, and John Hammond. John Hammond was quite a guy... I should read a biography of that guy. He was responsible for so, so many musicians uh, being raised to the, the place of prominence they deserve to be. And in a final kind of ironic note, ironic to me anyway, in 2000, year 2000, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Diana Ross, who I just realized was the one who starred in Lady Sings the Blues, doing the honors. On a personal level, um, Billie Holiday is, is kind of iconic. She's so iconic that... <laughs> she remained kind of an icon, and in my home when I was a kid, I don't think we had any recordings of Billie Holiday. She was just sort of like Billie Holiday the Great. She's out there someplace, but we didn't listen to her. And one reason I do these podcasts, as I've said before, is I'm learning so much and appreciating people I never was able to appreciate because I wasn't exposed to them. They were just like, okay, that's so-and-so. So I'm hoping that you're enjoying these broadcasts at least half as much as I am in recording them. So let's listen to some more Billie Holiday. I'm playing the earlier stuff because, as I just pointed out, the, her voice, due to drugs and alcohol and other things, kind of deteriorated in the 1950s. So these are, these are from earlier recordings from the 1940s. And I'd go back to the 1930s, but the recordings are so awful that it's really hard to catch how great she was. Either the recording itself is bad or the uh, orchestra she's playing with overpowers her singing. So here are a couple tracks that I really like, and I'll play them back to back. Moon Glow and Easy to Love. Hey. 
It must have been Moonglow Way up in the blue It must have been Moonglow That led me straight to you I still hear you saying Dear one, hold me fast And I start in praying Oh Lord, please let this last We seem to float right through the air Heavenly songs seem to come from everywhere And now when there's moon glow Way up in the blue I always remember That moon glow gave me you To love, so easy to idolize all others above. So the yearning for, so swell to keep every home fire burning for. We'd be so grand. So carefree together that it does seem a shame that you can't see your future with me cause you'd be old. So easy to love. Our next guest singer is someone you're going to have a little trouble identifying because she's not like Miss Jazz. But uh, she had a really good voice, and I'm including her because my dad really liked her. And listening to this, especially the first cut here, uh, I really like her too. <laughs> I'll give you a little hint. Uh, this first recording is with Benny Goodman in the late 1940s. Grab your coat, get your hat. On the doorstep Just direct your feet To the sunny side of the street Don't you hear the pit-a-pat And that happy tune is your step Life can be so sweet On the sunny side of the street I used to walk in the shade those blues on parade but I'm not afraid this rover crossed over if I never had a cent I'd be as rich as Rockefeller gold dust at my feet on the sunny side of the street no Okay, here's another hint. What a dog. What a dog. He's a tramp, but they love him. Breaks a new heart every day. He's a tramp, they adore him. And I only hope he'll stay that way. If you're not that old, or don't have kids, or don't watch the Disney Channel religiously, how about this? Never know how much I love you, never know how much I care. 
When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me fever When you hold me tight Fever Peggy Lee, of course, from the last cut, absolutely. She had quite a career, and it wasn't just that she it lasted so long, but she made a transition from uh, the, the big band swing era into the 1950s uh, TV movie scene easily and became a household name. Everybody knew Peggy Lee, no matter what. And if at the time you weren't old enough to remember her really good stuff with Goodman in, in the 40s, the gimmicky fever, fever, uh, brought her into uh, the public eye again. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. That's all there is. That really catchy melody was released in 1969 and recorded in 1967. Her voice isn't what it was, but uh, the song's really catchy and a nice little instrumental background to it. But it shows her staying power. This was a big hit during the, the height of the growing hippie psychedelic movement. This was recorded the same year as Late My Fire by, by Cream and played, became a hit during the, the Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and the Doors era. And this says a lot about her. She had what you could call an every woman's voice uh, that never lost its appeal. This is from an NPR feature from 2006. An author named Peter Richman tells her story in a biography, which he called Fever, from the song's title. The woman who was to become the wise to the world, Lee, was born Norma Dolores Eggstrom in North Dakota. Wow, no one of these guys changed their names. She performed with Benny Goodman, of course, uh, before going on to record and write songs of her own. Hollywood beckoned, too. She earned an Oscar nomination for her portrayal of an alcoholic singer in Pete Kelly's Blues. You gotta see that movie, you guys. Opposite the future Just the Facts Ma'am star of TV's Dragnet, Jack Webb. Uh, she died of a heart attack at 81 in 2002. And uh, Diana Krall, a popular pseudo-jazz singer, noted her influence on, on her own singing. Among her other hits, Is That Older Is, Mom, and so forth. She published her life story in 1989, but uh, this book provides the first major biography of the singer. I'm going to read a, a rather long section from the book, uh, not just because it's informative, but uh, the writing is really good. And she did a concert in New York, One Nighter, One Night Stand, on February 4th, 1961. And this was uh, written about that night. They had come to bask in her cool. They had come to Basin Street East to hear the Queen. That's what Ellington had ordained her. If I'm the Duke, man, Peggy Lee is the Queen. The New Yorker, describing this particular engagement in typically omniscient style, had settled simply for calling her practically the hub of the universe, with no argument from the cognoscenti. At any rate, the semantics were irrelevant. No one on Basin Street needed convincing. The only phrases that mattered on this night were melodic, jazzed, bluesy, heartbroken, hopeful, and all absolutely American. And the woman who could sing them all from the classic phrasings of the standard popular songbook to adventurous melodies out of the rhythmic fringe and everything in between was about to seize the small, empty stage and claim the whole magical New York night as her very own. They were here because no one would dare miss any occasion to see the undisputed female champion of pop jazz at the top of her game. In a city and time where beat and beat, with a capital B, were almost interchangeable. 
Down on Washington Square, a handwritten sign stuck to a snow-covered fence read, Be Abstract. But unlike Kerouac, Pollock, Farrell, and Getty, and all of their friends in the avant-garde, Peggy Lee was not out on the fringe looking in, railing at the soullessness of it all. After years of feeling enshrined the outsider, she had reached the top of her game and was finally enshrined inside the big room of fame where the lights burned late and her ballads and jazz and rhythm and blues spanning every emotion reached every kind of listener. From martinied up suburban types to the visiting jazz men and players who had come to pay homage to tap the tiny tables as her informal accompaniment nodded yes. The roster of faces in the crowd during her four-week stint at Basin Street that winter would say all that had to be said about her peers' regard for her status in the pop pantheon. Making the pilgrimage to East 48th Street were Ray Charles and Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald and Lena Horne, Marlene Dietrich and Judy Garland. Garland once called Peggy her favorite girl singer. Then there were Cary Grant, Jamie Durante, Sammy Davis Jr., Joan Crawford, Art Carney, Louis Armstrong, and a young arranger named Quincy Jones. Tony Bennett called late one night after a gig in Detroit, hoping for a seat at the 2.30 a.m. show. None would have thought of missing out on this engagement, not at this time in this era where popular jazz singing was not only a craft, but an art of the highest order, a universal language that touched the hopes and longings of a generation of American dreamers. So that's where Peggy Lee stood in 1961's jazz scene. In that reading, there were several repetitions of the word pop, and not so much in a derogatory way, but as in literally popular. This was a time when jazz, uh, I guess call it generic jazz, was making a big a big splash in the country. Uh, there were several TV shows which used jazz's themes, M Squad, of course, Peter Gunn. These have been referred to as the Mancini years. He did a whole bunch of movies, and of course, Peter Gunn and uh, Mr. Lucky. Uh, Mancini was everywhere, a very talented composer and arranger. Listen to this. You know, I hear something like that, and I have to try to figure out whether to add him to the pantheon of, of uh, jazz greats or whether even to include him in jazz. But I think uh, after hearing the section about Peggy Lee, he fits in very nicely into what was referred to as pop jazz. It had all the accoutrements of jazz, uh, the phrasing, the chords, the rhythm, everything but <laughs> but it, looking back on it, lacked the drive that sort of created and, and developed jazz in the first place back in the 30s or even back in the 20s, that kind of spontaneity and uh, the, the passion of it. It had become a generic, I've used that word a lot, but it had become sort of a, a generic music form. It was wonderful to listen to, and everybody got into it who was on the ball and hip, and it was an offspring of, I think, what was left over from the early 50s beatnik era with Kerouac and so forth when uh, bebop was, was big. And this kind of like, it kind of like spread, beat the whole beat scene, the bongos and the whole bit, which uh, were a, a bastardization of what Kerouac believed in and, and wanted to happen or, or believed was important. But that it kind of like just spread like a, like a virus across the whole population and um, and this was the the product of that whole 50s jazz fetish and it would last 
well, in movies anyway, anyway with, with Mancini's uh, scores for movies through the middle 60s at least. And as we know, movies were always behind what was going on. The whole scene faded out. It didn't die, it just kind of faded in, into the background with the rise of what I consider good rock, creative rock with, with real musicians in the late 60s. Well, I warned you there'd be more uh, thoughts in this, and there's a long one. Uh, let's get back to one last track by Peggy Lee. This is from the late 40s, uh, again, I assume with Benny Goodman. It was recorded when Peggy Lee was still just a really good singer before Fever and Is This All There Is and Lady and the Tramp and stuff. Uh, it's All I Need Is You. I see that I've managed to talk myself down to 18 minutes left in the show. Um, so I'm going to cover one, two, three, maybe four singers briefly in that time. I'll start with someone I do like and then end with three short segments on singers that, uh, let's see, I can't see they're bad, that I don't care for. Just personal opinion, okay? So don't get offended. It's very clear. Our love is here to stay Not for a year But ever and a day The radio And the telephone And the movies that we know May just be passing fancies And in time may go But oh my dear Love is here to stay Together we're Going a long, long way In time the Rockies may crumble Gibraltar may tumble They're only made of clay But our love is here to stay This is someone I was completely unfamiliar with. I'd heard the name, but uh, I included here by request when I asked for a list of uh, female singers that might <clears throat> fit into this program. This is Blossom Deary, D-E-A-R-I-E. She's an American, and somehow I assume she was English, maybe because of the name. She's listed as an American jazz singer and pianist. Actually, uh, before I read this, I, I kind of like her piano, <laughs> piano playing better than I like her singing, but that's just me. Um, she's born in 1926 in New York, mixed, mixed Scottish and Norwegian, and began singing in New York. She moved to Paris in the early 50s and formed a vocal group called the Blue Stars. She signed with Verve Records under uh, Norman Grants and came back to the U.S. Uh, where, despite develop as, developing a successful career and achieving international fame, by 1974, the lack of interest from major labels led her to start her own label, Daffodil Records. She continued performing into her 80s. She died in uh, 2009 in Greenwich Village, New York. I think probably the popularity of anyone related to jazz kind of waned during that period because of the rise of, or the, already not the rise of, the dominance of rock and roll, which was on its way to its own demise and disintegration. 
Anyway, that's Blossom Deary. I'm glad to hear about her. She's, she's a good singer. Um, and I, as I said, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with her, but I'm glad I am now. Due to time constraints, I'm going to just have that one track and one track from each of the following uh, people. So, on to another artist. Loving you is not a choice and not much reason to rejoice. But it gives me purpose, gives me voice to say to the world, this is why I live. You are wildly. Loving you is why I do the things I do. Loving you is not in my control Loving you, I have a goal, a reason for my life Everywhere I turn, you are there Everywhere I look, things are different Everything seems right, everything seems possible Every moment bursts with feeling Why is love so easy to give And so hard to receive But though I want to live I now can leave with what I never knew I'm someone to be loved And that I learned from you Now at last I see what comes from feeling Listening to Nancy Wilson proves to me that I'm completely out of the mainstream. She was incredibly popular. And um, I'm sure that just about everybody who listens to this show can identify her, except for me because I never listened to her. What I'm about to say is, again, from a completely personal viewpoint, I'm not putting her down... Well, not directly. It goes back to personal taste again, and uh, I've given up a long time ago trying to match my taste with public opinion, and I'm happy where I am. Okay, what don't I like about Nancy Wilson? I, <laughs> if you care, unless you've already turned out the show. All I can think of when I hear her voice, one, one, it's, it's sort of the modern way of singing. It's, it's, it's not to me, it's not jazz, it's, well, maybe on the fringe. But all I can think of is Broadway belting out a song and stylizing it in a personal way to the point where style becomes more important than the music. And that's what Broadway is all about to me. It's entertainment. And I, I think to appreciate Nancy Wilson you have to enjoy the style for its own sake and not the singing. Yeah, she sings on key and she's strong and she has a good range and all that. But there's nothing there to me musical about it beyond the fact that she's singing a song. So, let the hate mail flow forth. <laughs> And what's most impressive to me about Nancy Wilson is, is her incredible popularity. I'll read a little bit here. Nancy Wilson was born in uh, 1937 in, in Ohio. She won a talent contest and was rewarded with a role as, as a host for a local television show. And she went on to attend college and uh, with a BA degree in education, by the way. In 1956, she auditioned and won a spot as the vocalist for Rusty Bryant's Carolyn Club Band, moved to New York, and while she was there, she met Cannonball Adderley, the, Adderley, the jazz saxophonist, who introduced her to her manager, John Levy. She landed a record deal with Capitol Records. She did a lot of touring and performed at the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles and the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas, and her album, Tell Me the Truth, was released the following year. She won a Grammy Award for How Glad I Am and hosted a TV show. As, as I remember that. 
from 1967 through 68 and appeared uh, as, a, as, I don't know, as a guest, maybe just as an actress, on I Spy and The Cosby Show. She won a second Grammy Award with her album, uh, with her album called The Nancy Wilson Show. Went overseas to Japan, declared the winner of the annual Tokyo Song Festival, and the list goes on with her awards and so forth. Really amazing. She was inducted into the Big Band and Jazz Hall of Fame in 1999, and from 1996 through 2005, she was the host of the Washington, D.C.-based radio program, The Jazz Profiles. In 2007, she celebrated her 70th birthday with an all-star event hosted by Arsenio Hall, and she passed away in, actually, just two years ago, 2018. Okay, let me reiterate one more time again she's well how do I put this she's very popular everybody loves her but me <laughs> um, I'm not putting her down I'm just saying it's not in my 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 taste spectrum uh, compared to like Billie Holiday or Anita O'Day or Ella Fitzgerald she just doesn't fit in there she's she's in what I guess that group of singers we talked about with Peggy Lee uh, kind of a pop jazz thing and with an incredible style and I think her style is what made her very personal very to me over the top so that's that that's Nancy Wilson like her or not as the case may be she's had an incredible career and a very successful lady and it seems like a pretty good lady so next we go downhill a hill covered with WD-40, ice, and oil. Way to the bottom. <laughs> well, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover two artists. I can't call them artists. Two singers. Two people who, who sang and were very popular. How's that? It's time to offend. Have a young woman listen to hundreds and hundreds of country western records, place her in a giant barrel, something comfortable, attach some sort of vibrating mechanism to her throat, then give her a recording contract and back her up with an out-of-work horn section, and you have someone who sounds something like K-Star. On the radio in the late 1950s, this is a kind of, of, how do I put it, I can't use the word crap, can I use the word crap? This is the kind of crap that was on the radio that was popular. In rock, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis was, uh, I don't know if he was jailed, but he was shamed by marrying his, what, 14-year-old cousin. Elvis Presley was inducted into the service and where he became uh, basically a, a dope addict. Chuck Berry was busted for pot, and we were left with this stuff. Thank God for the Beatles and the British invasion, in my humble opinion. Don't expect a second cut by K-Star. I was going to uh, do another... <laughs> Well, I was going to do Teresa Brewer, but I ran out of uh, <laughs> metaphors. Let's uh, end up with something pleasant. I look at you and suddenly Something in your eyes I see Soon begins bewitching me Is that old devil moon that you stole 
from the sky It's that old devil moon in your eye You and your glance make this romance too hot to handle Stars in the sky are blazing their light Can't hold a candle to your razzle-dazzle You've got me flying high and wide On a magic carpet ride Full of butterflies inside I wanna cry, wanna croon Wanna laugh like a loon It's that old devil moon in your eyes Just when I think I'm free as a dove Old devil moon, baby So <laughs> that was Oscar Peterson and Anita O'Day, who I, every time I hear her, I, I like her more. Um, how about a preview for the next show? Yeah, the next show will actually finally, after all this time, uh, be about male singers, jazz singers. And I'm only doing four guys, I think, four, four male singers. And this is one of them. And I'll see you next time, hopefully within a week. Hope you're enjoying the show and you're not offended by most of what I say. Okay, Mike Carter signing off. Well, Mr. Kata, Mr. Kata, I almost forgot. If you have any comments, which I hope you do, my Gmail again is, sit right to my my uh, Gmail, is gcarter1mwc, that one is in uh, the numeral, gcarter1mwc at gmail.com. Drop me a note. saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart without a love of my What I was there for You heard me saying a prayer For someone I really could care for And then there suddenly appeared The only one my arms could ever hold I heard somebody whisper Please adore me 
And when I looked, the moon had turned to gold. The moon. Now I'm no longer alone without a dream in my heart, without a love of. 